What is up? I am Will Fulton, and this is Thrillist Best Podcast. So, obviously, the pandemic that we're currently living through has changed the way we travel, both long-term and short-term, but one thing we have seen at Thrillist recently is a reinvigorated interest in summer road trips. So earlier this month, our travel team put together a list of the weirdest and most interesting roadside attractions in every state. We're talking about the world's largest chest of drawers, to a Britney Spears museum in her hometown, to an upside-down replica of the White House in Wisconsin. Yes, those are all real things, and it gets even weirder. So today, I'm going to speak with Andy Kreza. He's a travel editor, an expert in roadside attractions, and an enthusiastic supporter of all things fucking weird in the United States. He's the perfect guy to talk about this with. We're also calling some of the people behind these monuments, including the dude who owns the world's largest ball of paint. He's awesome. And a New Orleans tour guide who's going to talk about Nicolas Cage's ridiculous pyramid tomb that's kind of become a tourist attraction in the city. I promise this will all make sense later. But before we do anything else, I just want to deliver this very quick PSA. You know, like I said, and you obviously know, we are in the middle of a pandemic right now. And look, everyone out there listening is an adult or at the very least a child with great taste in podcasts and unsupervised internet access. But you can hop in a car anytime and enjoy some of these right now safely with people you live with or your germ squad. But wear a mask. Don't get near people. Do some research on what the situation is like, where you're going. Basically, don't be stupid and don't put yourself or other people at risk. Um, And at the very least, you can just enjoy thinking about these roadside attractions and maybe imagine one day visiting them. You know, there's plenty of ways to enjoy this. But anyway... Sorry for yelling. (laughs) Here's my call with Andy. So, Andy, how are you today? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing well, all things considered, you know. Yeah. Not great. That's the the qualifier we have to give to everyone. Well, it's good to talk to you. I will say that. That's kind of the all things considered for me (laughs) is that I have to talk to you. Well, I think (laughs) we're going to talk about something that I know you like. The weirdest roadside attraction in every state is an article that uh, you guys on the travel team put out fairly recently. Um, do you love these weird uh, roadside attractions, personally? Yeah, it's a, it's actually like a weird passion point for me. I like I, I drive a lot, and I mean, like, not as much now that I have a kid, but, uh, you know, road trips are one of my favorite things, and I always like to have these little oddball stop-offs as, uh, as a compass point. And I think now more than ever, when we're, you know, kind of stuck traveling domestically and in shorter distances, I think that these kind of become these highway markers and these like pieces of nostalgia that uh, we all want to experience as we're out on the road. We're kind of in this this weird situation right now where we're all turning into our parents in the way we travel in that and listening to like crappy old music and going to these places that really like are out of the way because there's nowhere else to go at this point, you know? Like, this is the kind of thing that you would go off the highway for back in the day just because you didn't know any better and you were following a sign. Now they kind of became these destinations. Yeah. And so I thought that I would sit down and, and zhuzh up an older article that kind of focused on these and, and really get into the ones that are good because there are a lot of them, you know? there's there's And there's a huge difference between going to something that's really memorable and then just going to, like, the world's largest candle that's for some reason in the middle of Scapoose, Oregon. Yeah, and what is what is that differentiation between, you know, a lot of these are obviously a little chintzy and maybe a little tacky on purpose uh, to be a little ironic, but in your mind, what is the difference between something that is a tourist trap 
and one of these roadside attractions that's really quirky and weird uh, in a good way. Well, I don't think they're necessarily mutually exclusive, but I do think that, you know, there, there's there's an element to a lot of these that's very folk arty. You know what I mean? Like, you've got uh, this old grocery store in Mississippi called Margaret's Grocery that ends up having this really cool love story behind it and uh, a big preservation effort behind it. You've got uh, this weird roadside amusement park in Oregon called Enchanted Forest that's like this artist who hand-painted and hand-built all these rides in this like really trippy forest fantasia so that kids in a nearby town had something cool to do and it's kind of taken on this mythical status mm-hmm. and so you know that that's a lot cooler than you know landing in a town and suddenly you know somebody had decided to make a big giant bucket for no reason and <laughs> put up signs all over the road to get people to come and take pictures with it yeah, so when you look at this list, what are you mentioned a couple? You mentioned Enchanted Forest, which I know you lived in Oregon for a while, so that must be literally close to home for you. But what are some other ones, just from an overview perspective, that give us a sense of what's on this list and what people can expect? Yeah, there's. I mean, it's it's all over the place, and and again, like we wanted to separate the commonalities like there, there are a lot of through lines that you see in roadside attractions across the country you'll see a lot of vortexes where like water runs uphill and you'll see a lot of world's biggest things the stuff on this list we kind of tried to steer towards stuff that's more indicative of where it is and okay. singular in that regard so you know we've got um a giant whale on the side of the road in oklahoma that's uh formerly was part of this big giant water park which is it, uh, has since closed and so now it's just this like big giant gaping maw of a blue whale in the middle of nowhere that's pretty cool and when you look into the backstory of it you've got uh, a lot of regional history behind that uh, we've got stuff like the Winchester Mystery House in California which is this crazy labyrinthine uh, mansion that Sarah Winchester the heir to the Winchester rifle fortune had built as a way to confuse ghosts that she thought was haunting her Um, so it kind of just, yeah, it bounces all over that. Uh, and then we've got this really tacky touristy stuff. Like, uh, in upper Michigan, there's this novelty act called the Youpers (laughs) who have made their entire career out of songs about poop and deer hunting. And they decided to make this big giant, uh, middle of nowhere tourist trap called the Youpers tourist trap that has like the world's largest working rifle and the world's largest chainsaw and like a double decker outhouse museum, just all kinds of tacky stuff (laughs) like that, that draws people in. So it was like a tourist trap created for the intent of being a tourist trap. And that kind of makes it clever Precisely. a little bit. Got it. What is a youper? A youper is a person from the upper Finish peninsula of Michigan. Um, oh. It's a very isolated and rustic and beautiful part of the country. Which you're kind of from. They call the people They call the people from the lower peninsula trolls, by the way. Are you a troll or a... Under the bridge. Are you a troll or a youper? I am a, a born and bred troll. From Michigan. I am, yes. So what, you know... I, where we have a lot of really cool tourist trap and roadside attractions that I would go to growing up. We had, like, Seashell City, which was a giant seashell <laughs> uh, in an area where, you know, there's no ocean water to make seashells. So, <laughs> you know, this is near and dear to me. Most most definitely. And, you know, you mentioned world's biggest whatever. I feel like that's definitely a subsection of these roadside attractions maybe something that comes to people's minds immediately when they think about this world uh, in your guesstimation why do people routinely show up 
at these world's largest blanks. I mean, I'm always fascinated with that because it just seems so stupid in theory. But also part of me is just like, oh, I have to see that. There's no way I can pass that up. Look, if you're driving through the prairie and you or like the rolling hills of Minnesota and you see sign after sign advertising the world's ballast or largest ball of twine, Mm -hmm. for example, which is uh, an attraction that Weird Al actually wrote a song about it. Uh, and then was honored in that town. So you know it's song, good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if, if it's got that weird L stamp <laughs> of approval, for sure. Yeah. Uh, but I think that as you're driving, you're kind of like, you're beat over the head with it. It's like this old school American hucksterism, right? Like, can that ball of twine really be that big? And then you see another sign, and you're just like, oh, it's coming up again. Like, maybe we should stop off and see if it's really that big. And then, like, you kind of want to maybe prove it wrong, and you start going through <laughs> your head thinking you've seen bigger balls of twine. I feel like that's part of it, this, like, American incredulousness. We're like, it can't be that big. Yeah. I got to check this out myself. Well, it's also got a, it's got an interesting history in, in the American experience, too, where, like, this is the kind of, like, the world's biggest stuff or, or um, taxidermied, like, half-man, half-creatures. That's the kind of stuff that used to be brought around on wagon trains to, you know, show people in settlements. It was the big entertainment at the time. And now that... Uh, America became more interlinked with highways and everything, you go to it rather than it coming to you. Most definitely. And like, you know, on that, what is one of the weirder things uh, from this list that come to your mind when, you know, uh, weird is in the title, but what's something that like is emblematic of how weird these roadside attractions can get? Well, my favorite one is a little fella named Jake the Alligator. Okay. And uh, Jake is, he's in Long Beach, Washington, uh, right by Astoria, Oregon, which is where The Goonies was filmed, um, for a little context. But uh, Jake is one of those, like, fake folk art things. He was uh, a half alligator, half man. He's about five feet long. Uh, He is supposedly mummified, and he leers out at you from a glass case in this place called Marsh's Free Museum, which is like this bric-a-brac laden, like, pecularium uh, in the middle of this otherwise like really idyllic town known for its its kite museum and stuff like that. And uh, what is a pecularium? Jake, yeah. I don't mean to. What, pe- I never. Oh, I've never sorry, heard that word. Some, I think it's a Mr. Burns word, to be honest. <laughs> uh, like like a, like a an emporium of the peculiar. Oh, okay. Um, I got. I got. It. Okay. I'm yes. sorry. Please continue. Yes. Uh, please don't interrupt me again. I know <laughs> I that won't. you're just trying to do your job. I won't. I won't. I was talking about an alligator man. <laughs> so Jake got famous, right? Like. Um, do you remember the the Weekly World News from back in the day, like that tabloid? Of course. That, uh, like, y- so you mean the, Bat Boy? The fa- the, yeah. So Bat Boy was the most famous, but the second most famous was Jake the Alligator. Ooh, okay. And Jake the Alligator Man was discovered uh, on a postcard from this place. And so in the subsequent years, not only has he become almost this de facto town mascot, but he also had, there's a festival, like a rockabilly uh, hot rod festival that celebrates his birthday every year. And like, it's always his 74th birthday, I think. It's really um, one of those cases where this weird little piece of roadside weirdness became its own cultural phenomenon. And uh, that happens with a lot of these places. It's really cool. And we can go see the alligator man if we want. You can. He's, he's in a glass case. He's not allowed out anymore for the festival. They use replicas. Um and yeah, he's 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 there next to the double-headed calf and the uh, jarred tapeworm. Oh yeah, that one. Um, <laughs> what what are you seeing when you go see? Like, what does it actually? What does it look like? I mean, he's like he's about five feet long. He's got this um, 
head of he, you know like a fake mummy type like mummified face with like snarled teeth and long uh straggly hair and yeah he's just sitting there sometimes he has a hat on um so yeah he looks like i mean i don't understand how you don't grasp what a mummified half man half alligator corpse looks like my favorite, sometimes he has a hat on depending on the mood um hold on i think i have a siren over here new york am i right all right, so you know, kind of combining the uh, the oddity aspect and also the world's largest blank, I actually talked to the woman behind your entry from Kansas, Erica Nelson. She runs the world's largest collection of the world's smallest versions of the world's largest things. Surely you remember that entry, Andy. Oh yes, it's fantastic. It's a roadside attraction about roadside attractions. Exactly. So. Um, I called her earlier today to talk about roadside attractions and her projects. And here's what she had to say about her roadside attraction that covers roadside attractions. So Erica, my first question, I guess, is when did you first become obsessed with roadside attractions? And is obsessed even the right word? Interested in? Preoccupied with? Um, Well, I think it's always been a part of that sort of visual landscape. Uh, as a kid, we did family road trips every year. Um, so there'd always be some sort of big, bright, attractive thing out the window of the car. Mm-hmm. And they were made even more interesting when my parents wouldn't stop. So the thing that you can't get to ends up becoming more and more important. So. I kind of followed the normal path for a while growing up, but then um, in grad school, I remembered how much I loved these sort of magical, mystical things that I couldn't ever really explore on my own uh, growing up, and I decided that I would start revisiting those. Is there one that you remember passing as a kid that for whatever reason your parents wouldn't stop and you were just like dying inside to go see? Well, uh, we lived in a town not far from a giant eight ball water tower okay. and I couldn't understand why could, we could never go see the eight ball. And they were like, Oh, well, it's just a water tower. It doesn't actually, you can't actually go see it. <laughs> so it was always one of those mysterious things, but I knew when we passed by it, we were really close to home. And it wasn't until later that I understood that, yes, it really was just a painted water tower. And I would have been disappointed if they had taken me, but, you don't know that when you're little. You just know that you can't go see the big giant thing that you just saw. Can you talk about, I'm going to try to get this right, the world's largest collection of the world's smallest versions of the world's largest things. Is that right? That was absolutely well, correct. There was, wasn't even stumbling in there. That's no. awesome. Well, I wrote it down, so <laughs> that probably helped. Okay, can you explain <laughs> how this came about? I think, you know, the seed was planted early on, this kind of forbidden fruit. But what actually inspired you to make this a thing? And for people out there, what is this thing that's kind of hard to say? Um, well, it started, with, it started with the love of the roadside attractions especially the ones that called themselves any sort of world's largest, like world's largest ball of twine or that giant eight ball water tower is the world's largest eight ball. Yeah. And I would go travel to these things, find out about them, but they never had sufficient souvenirs, like something that really said, I was here, I saw it. So I started making my own souvenirs 
at some point I realized that since I was seeing world's largest, if I made my souvenirs little tiny versions, then it'd be even funnier. And then I realized that if I had a lot of them, I could compound the superlatives and get to the world's largest collection of the world's smallest versions of the world's largest things. <laughs> okay, I love that. And this started as, you know, you weren't even a roadside attraction. You actually took this collection on the road at first, right? Yeah. Um, so I started really actively pursuing them as little mini road trips. Um, while I was teaching at the University of Kansas mm-hmm. and getting my, my final degree. Um, and the road trips were the things that were keeping me sane. And then it was time to join the real world or sell everything and move into a bus and just live on the road. So I did the second one. <laughs> a wise choice. And I'm that's sure. when, <laughs> well, I mean, it's, you only get to do that once. And if you make the other decision, I don't think you ever get back to that point where you can make that decision again. No, I honestly wasn't being sarcastic. That sounds like, it sounds like a great choice. (laughs) Kind of want to do that right now. Um, Yeah, it, it, it wasn't all the way supported throughout my life, but, um, it's turned out for the best. So yeah, I moved on the road and I figured that the fascination with these people going their own way and doing their own thing could be how I'd structure my journeys through the U.S. I made that the point of living on the road. I would just go to small towns that either had some sort of really funky arts component to it or some sort of world's largest thing and see what I could find out about the thing, about the where, where it was made, why it was made. And then as I produced the models, I would just put them in the windows of the bus that I was living in. And it became a whole touring thing. Well, so how many items are in the collection right now? Like cumulatively? They, they it kind of fluctuates because um, a lot of times they are still in mobile museum units. Mm. Which also means they get exposed to some pretty harsh elements. So sometimes rubber band balls explode and you can't count that as a model anymore. True. Um, so anywhere from 150 to 175 at any given time, uh, depending on what shape they're in or if they've been retired or if they need to be remade. That makes sense. And, you know, you were talking about going and finding out the stories behind, um, you know, the world's largest blank. Did you find that a lot of these roadside, roadside attractions had a backstory that made sense and a reason, you know, why there is the world's largest ball of, uh, I don't know, like kitty litter or something, or were they just kind of random? You, They seem random, but that's why it was so much, so interesting to stop and actually dig into it because there is a reason for most of them. But well, most of them do have either a storied industry of the area or a lone eccentric collecting twine and making a giant ball. Uh, but they all talk about people what people do in the place that they live. Yeah. Is there anything, is there any story that sticks out in your mind uh, in particular of a big thing that was in a town that had a really interesting backstory? Uh, One of, one of my favorite stories is about the world's largest penny in Woodruff, Wisconsin, because I thought, Oh, penny, this has got to be like a home to a president or Uh, copper mining or some Mm -hmm. sort of thrifty thing but it turns out it was all um 
because of a doctor who would make house calls. And that in the north woods of Wisconsin, it often snowed, so she was making house calls on snowshoes, decided that that was ridiculous, and so asked anybody that she'd ever helped in that town to start gathering pennies to start a seed fund for a hospital. And the story was so sweet and sincere, I never would have guessed that that was behind that very simple monument. So that's that's one of my favorite sweet stories of, aw. So yeah, from, from what I understand, you <laughs> you try to make things as authentic uh, to scale as they can be. Do you remember your most challenging recreation? Um. The most challenging ones I haven't done yet because I haven't found the right materials. Okay. So, um, so I'm still trying to figure some out. But the ones out of the ones completed, the one that was the most satisfying to get just the right thing would have been for the world's largest olive rubber band. Okay. So I was at a residency in Delaware. And to celebrate the Mobile Museum being there, they also brought in the world's largest olive rubber bands at that time. And I agreed to make the world's smallest version of that world's largest ball of rubber bands in the gallery right next to the big ball. So I got to partner with all of the dentists in the area (laughs) and the dentists all brought me little tiny rubber bands for braces. So I spent the whole afternoon with tweezers trying to make (laughs) this small ball with tiny, tiny rubber bands that just did not want to cooperate and were flinging all over the part of the place. But eventually I got a decent sized ball that would work as a small version of that big ball. Oh my God, that sounds so frustrating. So when you talk about um, not being able to find the right materials, what does that even mean? Because then what are the right materials to make a small scale replication? Because like you can't always have small versions of exactly what makes up the big version. This is a complicated conversation, but I think you know what I mean, right? Yeah, and 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 that's when you decide where where your sort of fudge zones are. Like for the world's largest all of them, which I'm trying to make right now, full size in the mobile in the museum, um, I'm trying to also make the small one at the same time. And it turns out that if you think about small gum, they make chiclets. Right. Even better there used to be mini chiclets. No, I know what you're talking about. I know um, exactly what you mean. Yeah. So, yeah. So that one made sense that it's already built in. But like the ball of videotape, micro cassette tape was the closest I could get to something small. Um, for the ball of twine, I used embroidery floss and then tore that down because those are multi-stranded. So I t- took that down to just one strand. Uh, but there's other ones that, like the world's largest hand dug well. How mm-hmm. do you replicate that? It's a it's a hole. <laughs> it's a very large hole. So do you just make a small hole and call it good? Or does it have to be part of the construction? Or does it have to be a cutaway like the postcard? And I'm still sort of waffling on that one because I'd like the world's smallest version of the world's largest hand dug well to still be something that you'd want to see. Mm-hmm. But... Not too big. Now, like, kind of bringing you back to one of the first things we talked about, why do you think that there is this draw and this appeal for people to see big versions of everyday things? Do you think there's something 
uniquely American about doing this? You know, what are your thoughts about it? Um, I think it's uniquely young country-ish. Okay. Like Canada and Australia both have a lot of big things in the same vein. And for some reason, we all seem like brothers and sisters of that sort of countries that don't have thousand-year-old buildings. Mm. Um, so we're, we're making this sort of new history, and we're, we're especially in the U.S., we brag a lot. Yeah. So it's always got to be the biggest and the best. And Canadians don't so much, but they still they do it in that subtle way where they just go ahead and build a giant moose, and they don't tell you that it's the largest until you discover it for yourself. <laughs> Um, so I think that's part of it, but I think the reason that we're drawn to them is because it's one of the few times where you can recapture that little bit of childhood. Like scale is when you're standing next to a big thing, you feel small again Mm -hmm. and you get that sense of wonder, um, that, that we sometimes lose as we grow up and know what to expect. So it just jars you out of the current reality, the current scale space and means that it makes you into the sort of smaller toy-like object. And that's, I think that little bit of magic that happens around going and seeking most largest. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that was very well said and uh, a point well put. I, just to go back really quickly, you said you're working on the world's biggest ball of gum, not only the world's smallest version of the biggest uh, ball of gum, but you're trying to make the actual biggest ball of gum. Did I mishear you? Yeah, I, I, I have been. Um, it's a challenge because I don't like gum. Okay. Um, okay. So it's hard for me to want to work on it. And <laughs> now in the time of COVID, I can't really ask other people to chew gum and then stick it on a communal ball. So it might be suspended for a while, but it is a work in progress. Um, I thought it'd be something that's achievable because it seems like in a world of world's largest, if you're not quite sure what to do, you you can always make a ball of something. Okay. That's as good long advice. as that ball hasn't already been done. Yeah. Yeah. And so like a, a giant ball of cat hair, you, somebody could do that. We need a lot of cats. Well, for the, the gum chewing, couldn't you just hire some, you know, some art interns just to sit around and, and chew gum all day? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's when the magic disappears, though. I mean, when it's actually a community-involved thing. Like, if it was a giant ball of gum on a trailer that visited elementary schools, and so the whole school, all day, their job was to chew gum, and then it was this progressive thing, that would have some magic. Ooh, I like that. If you're just hiring it, then you've got this this sweatshop gum chewers with massive jaws by the end of the day. Uh, it just, it would feel exploitive. <laughs> yeah, not not pandemic friendly either. Uh, are you waiting to, to the completed version to create your mini uh, replication? Um, I was trying to do the miniature one along the way. Like for every one that I chewed, I would chew a mini chiclet and make it into the small ball. <laughs> but as soon as I started doing the community component and traveling with the ball, I couldn't keep up with the chiclets. And then they stopped making the mini chiclets. Although I heard that in Mexico, you can still get the mini chiclets. So I'm going to have to resupply before I can continue work on the small ball. I think going over the border with, um, you know, like 18,000 mini chiclets might raise some suspicion. I don't know. 
I'm just telling you. Uh, so, so, and, and for people that uh, want to visit the world's largest collection of the world's smallest versions of the world's largest things, uh, you do have a permanent uh, space, correct? Yes, yes. We did end up with a roadside sideshow expo okay. in beautiful downtown Lucas, Kansas, population 400. <laughs> um, in the time of COVID, it is only open by appointment, but normally it's usually open April through October into our season. Amazing. That's great. So I just want to uh, say thank you for your time and talking about some roadside oddities and roadside destinations. And I appreciate your commitment to your work and all your insight here. Thank you. Thank you for giving me some time to tell some stories from the, from the road, because that, that is one of my favorite things to do. And in the, while, while we've all been grounded, I realize how much I depend on those road trips to Mm -hmm. keep me connected to the U S. Well, Erica, thanks again. I appreciate it. (laughs) Thanks a bunch. All right, bye. All right, we're going to take a quick detour. That's, you know, road trip lingo for a break. But we'll be right back, I promise. So Erica had a lot of interesting things to say. And one thing that I want to talk to you about is she kind of was talking about the myth, the mythos behind roadside attractions and how they are really prevalent in newer countries she used canada australia the united states as an example of you know we don't have buildings that are thousands of years old and sometimes these roadside attractions are kind of you know de facto taking the place places of those historic buildings how do you feel about that no that makes a lot of sense and it's also it's also interesting that a lot of uh the roadside attractions you see out there are um in tribute to american mythology so you mm-hmm. see a lot of like paul you see a lot of paul bunyans you do there. see a lot of paul big, bunyans right yeah i think the biggest one's actually in um in minnesota um or north dakota uh but then there's like a big there are several babe the big blue oxes you see a lot yeah. of like um a lot of them will deal with uh old old west icons and things like that so yeah it's almost like they're these these shrines to American myth that's really not that old in the greater scheme of things. Yeah, and you know, another thing that she talked about too was um, she echoed your sentiment of, you know, when you were compiling this list, you weren't just looking for the gravity hills that are in like every state where balls roll, you know, it's just an optical illusion. It's she chose things that have a history and have a story and aren't just like some random whatever. And... To that point, another person we talked to to go into the mind of one of these people that own and run one of these world's largest blanks. So we talked to the owner of the world's biggest ball of paint, which is your uh, pick for Indiana, Andy, actually. Yeah, it's a a compelling world's largest thing because it's a work in progress. Exactly, which uh, Michael, the owner, goes into. And here's our call right now. Cue it up. Okay, so Michael, I am here to talk with you about the world's largest ball of paint. And I mean, just starting there, is it exactly what it sounds like? It is. It's exactly what what you said. Um, (laughs) And you are, is it fair to say you're the owner of the world's largest ball of paint? The the caretaper? What is the terminology here? 
uh, I started it and I own it. And my, me and my family, we paint it and other, let other people paint it too. Right. So where is the world's largest ball of paint? It's in Alexandria, Indiana. Okay. That's, a, that's about 50 miles north of Indianapolis. Okay. And wh- how did this start? Did it start with a, I guess it started with a really small ball of paint that just got kept a- added to? When, well, did, when did it start and what was the idea behind it? Okay. Here, uh, when, I was, when I was in high school, uh, I was, of course, I was on the baseball team. And me and a guy was horsing around in this building and knocked over a can of paint. And that ball got into that paint. So I let it set for a couple of days and I didn't know what to do with it. So I wrapped a wire around it and I just continued on painting it and dipping it. And fortunately, I kept records of every color and every number that I'd done. And it grew to about a thousand layers after two years so when i left when i got out of high school and uh about 11 years later after i'd been married after i got married and everything and my boy turned three years old i decided to start another one which i took a regular baseball ran a rod through it and started painting it (laughs) i didn't dip it or nothing i just started painting it and I continued that on now for uh, 43 years. Uh, oh, my God. So, <laughs> I mean, this is a stupid question, but layers of paint are really thin, right? I think, you know, I live in I live in an apartment in Brooklyn, and I think the wall has been painted over about 100 times, um, but that's still not that thick. No, it's true. It's, it's, probably about, it's probably about as thin as a dollar bill or something, you know. I'm not sure. Uh yeah, it takes a it takes a lot of layers to to build up. Yeah, so I mean, how how big is this ball of paint right now? It's about four foot wide. Shit. And, and uh, it weighs as of right now, it weighs six thousand pounds. Six thousand pounds. Six thousand, and that that was a weight that I, I I haven't been able to weigh it for two years, and two years ago weighed six thousand and fifty pounds. Because of the 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 how big it was and everything, it was almost touching my floor. <laughs> so I, I cut a I cut a hole in the ceiling, and I put a steel structure straight up so I could raise the ball up. Who is is applying these new layers of paint? I know it might be different now uh, during the pandemic, well, I but get, yeah, I get visitors from all over the world that come and and see it, and all over all over the United States. And when they come and see it, I, I have them to paint a layer on there. So as a family comes in, they all, they all, I give them all roller and they all paint as a family. Interesting. So people can come by and not only look at this and gawk at it, um, but they can add to it and they become part of it in be, a way. You can be part of the history of it, yes. And, uh, and then you get your name in my book. I make sure everybody's names in my book and where they're from and everything, and then I give I give everybody a certificate of proof that they painted it. Um, how many layers of paint are on this right, on this? Right center? now, right now there's twenty six 
26,990. <laughs> so 26, so almost 27,000 people have. Almost 27, yeah. Oh my God. What do you think makes people want to come to Indiana and, you know, like you said, from all over the world and not only look at this ball of paint, but also physically add to it? What do you think the draw is? Well, I, I, I think uh, it's something different. It's out, in, it's out in the rural area. They have to use a GPS to get here. Okay. Uh, it's, uh, uh, it's, a, it's a chance for them to uh, not only see it, but to be a part of it. You know, mm-hmm. I, I make sure everybody's a part of it. And uh, I think that's what attracts most of it. it uh, I really don't know for sure, but I think that's what it is. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of hard to pin down, but um, I don't know. Even just even just saying the world's largest ball of paint, I just immediately am like some part of my lizard brain is just like, I got to see that. <laughs> yeah, I have to right. see that giant ball of paint. And then you could actually paint it, too. I mean, that's even better. Right. And and uh, by by being the world's largest ball of paint, I've, I've gotten into the Guinness Book World Records over and and there wasn't no there wasn't no record to beat. So I had to let them drill a hole through the ball, pull out a core sample, and somebody put that under the core sample under a microscope, and they counted all the layers just to see if it was all legit, you know. Totally, like a tree trunk. You can kind of count the years. Same thing, yeah, same thing. Are you going to keep adding layers of paint to this until it becomes so large that it just you can't even hold it anymore? I mean, what what is the end game here? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Probably one of the, uh, I've got six grandkids and three kids that one of them will take over. I think, I think my oldest boy will probably take over the majority of it. Um, I, I've, I've got, I've made my, all my kids and the, the whole family, I've, I've made them be, get interested in it. Even <laughs> in fact, I've kind of burned them out a little bit on it, but, uh, They'll remember everything. Anybody in the world is interested, you know, that reads about it. Anybody in the world is welcome to come by. I, I don't charge nothing. You just come in, you paint it, and we'll give you a certificate. I mean, this is a personal question, but why don't you pay for it? You know, what, 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 what do you get out of it? Is it just, do you like to kind of bring these moments of joy and levity into people's lives? Do you- uh, yeah, you might say that. That, that's a that's a good word to say. Yeah, um, I don't know. I in the beginning, I just never did charge anybody, and I still don't. Um, I get my I get my paint wherever I can. You know, like mismatches and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. Sometimes people bring stuff, and, and I, I've just never I've just never charged nothing. You know, if they want to give a donation, some people have. You know, I I, I I get to paint with that. You know, so it's a uh, I I've had fun with it. That's I awesome. I meet a lot of I meet a lot of interesting people. From, I mean, not just in the states, but all over the world. I I think we've had we keep track of it. What visitors come from the other countries, and I think we've had about fifty or fifty-five different countries that have visited us. And somebody from every state in the United States, and they'll drive. 
people drive from another state just here just to come do it. I believe it. I mean, it's a great conversation starter. It's like I have the world's largest ball of paint right in the other room. You yeah. can check it out. Right. Um, well, this, this is, it's really cool. Um, Alexandria, Indiana, the world's biggest ball of paint. Michael, I, I want to thank you for coming on. Okay. Uh, thank you, Will. All right, Michael. Have a great day. Yeah. Yeah, bye. Bye. All right. So that was Michael the owner. It almost sounds weird to call him the owner of the world's largest ball of paint when really it belongs to all of us, I feel like. It, it really does, yeah. It, that's that's the world's paint. <laughs> Which well, is interesting. This paint. <laughs> America's paint, but people all around the world come to paint it. Something that's really interesting about him, which I had no idea going into the call, is he doesn't charge anything for people to A, come visit it, and B, to add their own layers of paint it is truly just a labor of love and the way he put it he just kind of likes to meet people which i think is pretty amazing actually yeah absolutely is he's just like, super on, into the we, idea like the, the whole point of these is just to lure in friends like even there's so there's so many like horror movies where the, the opposite happens so what what would you say is hmm, this is a hard one to say but uh the most important roadside attraction or something where it's like okay you have something from every state on this list what is the most emblematic of a roadside attraction in america or if you could just go to one which one would you pick yeah so i I think the one that kind of um exemplifies the best and the worst of all of these is uh this place called waldrug which is in uh the middle of south dakota uh okay so th- this requires a little bit of explaining because it is, in fact, a big drug store in a town called Wall. So, <laughs> you know, Wall Drug. Um, Sounds the promising. About, the thing about Wall Drug is that the entire town is built around this drug store. And uh, it's, it takes on this highway mythology as you approach it. So it's at, like, it's at the T where um, a, cross, a cross-country trip from east to west or um, west to east would be kind of, like, at its middle. But it's also, like... Where if you were driving up from the south, you'd either hang a left or a right to get to either of the coasts. Um, but in route to this area, you see hundreds of these hand painted signs advertising wall drug, and mm. they date back uh, decades and decades, uh, all the way from the beginning of the um, of the vehic- the vehicular boom uh, that happened after the Great Depression. And the things that they're advertising, because the signs are so old but also well-maintained, are like free ice water or five-cent coffee. And they get a little weirder as you go, and you start seeing them every hundred yards or so. And it'll be like, stop to see the dinosaurs, stop to see the singing wall, uh, singing cowboys, where the heck is wall drug? And like, you, just, you see them so frequently that you almost don't want to stop, right? And then right. you're like, how, well, how can you have free ice water? And it'll be like a cowboy laying in a trough and like a painting of... <laughs> Uh, and then you see a T-Rex and it's like, see the T-Rex roared. And so then you're like, okay, how is the T-Rex going to roar next to the singing cowboys? And then you get there finally, and you can't not stop because it's in the middle of nowhere. And it's the last place that you can really, uh, get gas for like miles and miles and miles. It's kind of like a necessary pit stop. And you walk in and it has all of those things. That ice water is cold and it is free. And that coffee (laughs) is five cents and it is gross. Uh, they have animatronic dinosaurs in addition to like real fossils. They have Native American art. They have a giant cafeteria where uh, the most iconic thing that you can probably eat in South Dakota is going to be an open-faced turkey sandwich from this place. It is not good, and I have eaten it like four times. 
can't not do it. Uh, it, it, it just kind of like pulls everything together that you think a roadside attraction is going to be from the tacky to the actually compelling. There's a saloon, shooting gallery, like everything all just plopped in the middle of the Badlands. So it's almost like visually, it's, it's, it's like it's somebody put a tourist trap on Mars. And it is, it's pretty, pretty spectacular. The funny thing about that and also about Jake the Alligator Man is they became famous outside of their regions through bumper stickers. And once you go mm. and you see these bumper stickers, you'll see them everywhere. The Waldrog one, the famous one, is where the heck is Waldrog. And the Jake one is uh, I Break for Jake. And once you see them, it kind of becomes this like weird, you know how like people on Harleys wave at each other or people in Jeeps like kind of signal each other when they drive by? Yes, if I you, do know that. If you've got one of these stickers on, on your car, you kind of do the same thing. And it's this weird like fraternity of people that have seen these oddball roadside attractions. You give them a knowing nod. So yeah. for, my, for me, this really reminds me of... I grew up going, you know, pretty much up, up, and going up and down the eastern seaboard, uh, driving from New Jersey to Florida at least once per year, south of the border, which I think is pretty problematic in a lot of ways. But it does have that same draw where, you know, you start seeing signs 100 miles away saying like south of the border, 100 miles, 90 miles, 80 miles, 50 miles. And it kind of like it builds up this tension. And when you get there. There's not much there. There, there's a giant uh, statue of a dude in a sombrero. There's a fireworks store. There are is is a little gift shop with you know tequila lollipops with scorpions inside of it. It's just a bunch of of crap. Did you (laughs) from south of the border? I don't. Yeah, I think so. Um, it's just a bunch of crap. But weirdly, it is one of the things I remember the most about driving up and down the coast. It's just like it was just a prerequisite stop. And um, just a lot of crap, but fun crap, you know? And I I think, if anything, too, like, the current state that we're in, it's driving this nostalgic push to, like, go revisit these things, right? Like, you kind of want to take that trip, and that's part of it. You know, it's, it's, it's it's this almost, like timeless thing that no matter what changes on the roadside that those scorpion uh tequila suckers are always going to be there wall drugs are always going to be there and even if you're in a yeah. situation where like the museum is shut down those big dinosaurs are always going to be there and like in a post-apocalyptic world like they're going to be like covered in flowers and scaring the crap out of people <laughs> future future generations will dig up wall drug and just have a hell of a time they'll figuring be, out be worshipped what was in, happening in the, in the year 4000 <laughs> <laughs> those paul bunyan statues oh, yeah. <laughs> across the midwest um okay well you know speaking of the afterlife uh, by the way i think south of the border is canceled so i don't think people will be going there anymore but speaking of the afterlife i have a surprise for you not on your list because it's not really a roadside attraction, but definitely an American oddity. In St. Louis Cemetery in New Orleans lies the tomb of a celebrity who is not yet dead, but the tomb has caused a lot of controversy with locals. It is a tourist trap in its own right. We have the NOLA tour guy, David G. Hedges. He's going to walk us through the story. Here's our call. Okay, so David, the St. Louis Cemetery, you know, it's one of the more interesting um, and historic cemeteries in the country, and a lot of notable names buried there, but there's one tombstone monument, nine feet tall, shaped like a pyramid. Can you tell us a little bit about that and 
who it belongs so, to. So a little bit about St. Louis Cemetery. It is the oldest cemetery in the city of New Orleans. Mm-hmm. It was established in 1789 behind Rampart Street, which was a wall. So it was back of the city, a kind of swampy area back of the city. They built a swamp. It was a walled cemetery, the idea being that the miasma would escape from the cemetery if you didn't wall it out. So the stench, people believe that smells made you sick, so the smell of death and all that. So it was away from the city, it was walled. Um, so that was in 1789. As you can imagine, a lot of things have changed since then. And so Nicholas Cage moved to New Orleans. And you have to keep in mind, you know, I was trying to base all, everything on history. Yeah. A lot of this is conjecture. And you, know, you could Google it and you hear different things from different people. But he did move to New Orleans. Um, I've heard because he was in the movie um, Bad Lieutenant and he loved the city. This was in uh, the 2000s, I think. 2000. It was after Katrina. Uh-huh. And he also bought the Lori Mansion, which is super famous for being um, host of a murder, a lot of murders and torture of enslaved people. Oh. Um, that's in the French Quarter. So it's famously haunted. So it's just a lot of like creepy things in this history. Yeah. And he decided because he's weird and he wants stuff that have history like that, I think. You know, he buys all sorts of crazy stuff without thinking about making money on it or anything. That's for sure, yeah. He bought that one too. And there's a funny story someone told me that, you know, across the street is like uh, Bernie Mart, which is a really classic full boy corner store. They have like some of the best full boys in the French Quarter. This guy or a couple of people were sitting on the corner. You know, they don't have any sort of seating. They're sitting on the corner, you know, eating a full boy, drinking a beer. They see a carriage guy go past, you know, that he did a carriage tour. The guy sees Nich- Nicholas Cage, and he's like, you know, he's doing a tour. So he's like, there's Nicholas Cage. There's Nicholas Cage's house. And Nicholas Cage, like, waves to everyone. <laughs> in his bathrobe from his balcony. <laughs> so, but he, he got himself arrested. You know, the cops didn't want to arrest him. He was super drunk in public. They were like, just go home. We'll get you a cab. And he was trying to fight them. So he got arrested here. And, uh, so he really, and uh, he really ingratiated himself into the New Orleans community. He, yeah, people did not like him, <laughs> yeah. to put it politely. They were like, who the hell is this guy? In a city that's very accepting, and very accepting of celebrities, you know, weird celebrities. You know, John Goodman moved here. Everyone fucking loves John Goodman here. Yeah. Everyone has a good story about him. Very different celebrity, though, as you can imagine. Now, how does Nicolas Cage fit into this? I'm starting like really long-winded, but at some point when he was living in New Orleans, he got an opportunity to buy two plots. So, as far as I understand, he either didn't have anything standing or just had rubble. Mm-hmm. And he wanted an Egyptian revival-style pyramid. Now, he did not make this up. There's another one in the same cemetery. And actually, when the Catholic Church and other people were like, you should not let him do this, <laughs> this is ugly and terrible, he was able to say, well, there's another one in the same cemetery. And there is one, when you walk right in in the front door, there is one from... The 1830s, been there since the 1830s. Okay. So he didn't make it up. It is a style. It's a style that exists in that cemetery, other cemeteries. His version is twice the size of the other one, as you can imagine. Just for people uh, who, who can't see a picture, what does this tombstone look like? How would you describe it? It's not a tombstone. It's taller than you. You said it was nine feet tall. Yeah. It is maybe nine feet across. It's pretty big. You can see it from the street. And all, it's blank, so it has a spot for his name, which is blank, because it's as well to put your name on your tomb before you go in there. People won't do it. Uh, he won't, because he's obviously someone who's obsessed with superstition and luck. Yeah. Above that is a Latin phrase. I'm going to actually look it up. I'll, 
Omnia ab uno, which translates uh, everything from one. Yeah. So, which, you know, a pyramid is that, right? So it's a big base and then it comes to a point. That's, that's the Nicholas Cage tomb. It's, um, it's definitely something. <laughs> um, I, my favorite is I don't tell people until we see it and what it is. And if you don't, if you just show up in rounds, you're not doing a lot of research. People are shocked. Or like, I have a lot of Europeans, you know? Yeah. Walk backpackers and types like that. And they'll, I, I, my favorite is not telling anyone and then showing them. And then their jaw drops when they hear the story. If they didn't know already. And, and actually a lot of people don't. Um, right. Unless they did a lot of research or they're fans of Nicolas Cage or they're fans of weird stuff, you know? Yeah. They're just big so. Nicolas Cage heads. Cage heads. <laughs> yeah. um, and you know, one other wrinkle in this story is, from what I understand, this tradition of putting on lipstick and kissing the tomb, is that just something? That, oh, does yeah. that really happen, or is that just something that people yeah. kind of say? Um, my A friend of mine who moved away years ago, he claims he worked at a, book, he worked at a bookstore in the French Quarter for mm-hmm. years. Uh, and he claimed that he started telling tourists that as a joke. And he was like, ha-ha, people are doing it. I don't know if that's the origins of it. That's what my friend claims. I'm sure other people have similar things, but you know, um, that's what you do on what's his name? The guy from the doors, the Jim Morrison. Jim Morrison. Site. Yeah. People do that in Paris. So, or in Oscar Wilde too. People do that on Oscar Wilde too. So it's funny though, cause he's not in there. He's just not even in there yet. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So the Catholic church actually sends out emails to us every once in a while being like, Hey, tell your people not to do this. I'm like, I'm not <laughs> telling anyone. This. I'm like, <laughs> like that's gross and weird you, should, you know people always get a laugh out of it they're like who would ever do that but yeah so that's the thing and then you know people mark tunes too with three axes and there is kind of a connection with voodoo and that that's kind of exaggerated and you know basically if you mark up many tunes or kiss any tunes you're kind of a jerk in my opinion yeah even <laughs> so if, especially if someone really is in people. there especially if someone is yeah. in there um okay yeah. so nicholas gage this pyramid uh tomb in St. Louis Cemetery. Why do you think he did it? Why do you think he bought it and, and made... Oh, I don't know. That's a great question. Yeah. I mean, why does he do any of the things he does? <laughs> he doesn't have any understanding of money. and he just. I mean, I think that... I mean, I don't know, right? Don't you think about sometimes, like, what's going to happen when you die? Don't you want to leave a mark in the world? And I think that's part of it. I mean, that's why... I mean, that's why people build extravagant grave sites, whether they're tombs in New Orleans or, you know, like the Cave Hill Cemetery in Louisville. And, you know, that's deep in Kentucky and Louisville, Kentucky, and a lot of the great sites, they're not Orleans style, but they're big statues, extravagant stuff. You know, people with money want people to remember them after they, everyone wants people to remember them, but if you have money, (laughs) you could do something about it. So, you know, I think that's a big part of it, honestly. I think that, you know, people want to leave their mark on the world, and he sees this is a way to doing it, and he had an opportunity, and he's like, why not? I mean, there could be more esoteric reasons. You know, there's a story that he was sleeping at the LaLaurie mansion and he had like a vision of, from ghosts or a nightmare or something. I kind of think that was made up by ghost guides yeah. <laughs> to tell people. I don't know if I believe that, but I think it's more, uh, I'm always erring on the side of human vanity over um, ghosts telling people things. Thank you so much, David, for telling us a little yeah, no bit problem. about uh, one of the weirder monuments in a city of great weird things, New Orleans. Awesome. Have a great day. Bye. Yeah. All right. Take care. 
All right, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more roadside attractions. So, Andy, did you know about Nicolas Cage's tomb I, in New Orleans? I did not, but it's maybe the least surprising reveal uh, <laughs> of, of who would have uh, their own gravesite already going. I mean, it's this nine-foot-tall pyramid. It's really out of place. It's super weird. Um, like, what's the it's point a little bit off the road. Like, honestly, though, like if you're going to build yourself a monument to yourself, uh, you might as well enjoy it while you're alive. You kind of talked about this in the beginning um, of our conversation about us as a country, as a culture, reverting to the way uh, even our parents or grandparents used to travel, where it is more about putting everything in the car, you know, and heading out on the road and also making sure that the road trip isn't just a means to get to your destination, but you enjoy your time in the car, too. And a lot of the things we've talked about from the Nick Cage tomb to the world's largest ball of paint, I think kind of fit that quota there are things that you want to go see things that you will remember as part of your road trip and you know right now traveling is obviously weird and difficult but do you see this as a trend that's going to continue do you see this as something that is going to kind of enter our travel zeitgeist again as destinations that people want to visit honestly it's 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 really hard to say um what normal travel is going to look like. I, I sure hope so, though, because I think that, like, road trippy type stuff is really cyclical in in and of itself, you know? Like, people tend to think that this went away, and it it, it didn't. A lot, this, this is kind of an evergreen travel move for people. We're just kind of starting to realize that we're taking it for granted, I think. Um, and as, you know, people are, are, are putting pins in their maps instead of actually putting physical pins in a, in a physical map, uh, I think that we're mm-hmm. going to see... A lot of very cyclical traveling um, that mirrors what we did as kids. We're going to want to take the next generation to go to that, to that national park. And in route to that national park, you can bet your ass we're stopping at every single dinosaur on the way. When I went on road trips, and I went on a lot of road trips when I was a kid, I, my, my dad just did not like to fly. But I remember so much from the actual physical act of driving, the places we stopped, the places I wanted to stop and didn't get a chance to. And... Um, no, I think it's cool, and I think it has appeal that maybe has gotten lost at least a little bit. That hopefully will come back. Yeah, and I, I think that applies and to is you, coming back to you, city folk too. <laughs> like, there's a lot of stuff that we take for granted, and there's a lot of really cool stuff, and there's a lot of really quirky stuff. And when we start thinking that we're too um, that we're too good for this kind of catchy stuff, or that we're too good to mm-hmm. like go and see the thing that everybody goes to see, that's the thing that you're going to end up missing the most when you can't have it. Yeah, and you know what else? You know what looks really fucking cool on Instagram? Dinosaurs. World's largest ball of paint. And the, yes, also. That. Yeah, dinosaurs. <laughs> all of this stuff. So, there's that too. Um, Andy, what's your favorite Nick Cage movie? My favorite Nick Cage movie? Uh, probably Face yeah. Off would be my... Or Face Off, like the, the cool film nerd thing would be to say Raising Arizona or Wild at Heart, but the answer is Face Off. Mm-hmm. I'm totally with what, you. What do you got? I... I, like for the sake of error, I would say raising Arizona, but um, my heart is saying face yeah, off. Face so. off's great because it's two two cage performances for one, and he's also really performing as one character performing as the other when it takes his face off. Great movie. I just you know what just now I just got that title so thank yeah, you. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah, they 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 beat you over the head with it, man. <laughs> um, lay off, lay off those all right, so suckers next time you watch it. 
<laughs> Will do. So the article is the weirdest roadside attraction in every state by Thrillist Travel, edited by Andy Kreza and others, but it has something, um, you know, conceivably every single person living in these United States can drive to one of these destinations immediately, safely and with social distance. So, you know, something for summer in there for everyone out there. Yeah, there, there really is something for everybody in there. Uh, even if it's the kind of thing that, that you're not into, you're going to get sucked into one of them anyway, so it might as well be the coolest one, right? Yeah, and really quick, I'm looking at this now. Louisiana Kenwood Historical and Cultural Museum. <laughs> it's kind of turned into a little Britney Spears shrine, uh, huh? I, little is, is kind of an understatement. Yeah, uh, somebody recreated her childhood room, I believe, in uh, the Kenwood Museum. Uh, it's basically a giant shrine to Britney Spears. And so you could feasibly go to Nicolas Cage's grave and then go to Britney Spears' mm. childhood on the same day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know what I say? Keep your tomb. Bury me in Kentwood in Britney Spears' bedroom. <laughs> All right, we should stop this. <laughs> Andy? <laughs> Andy, thank you so much for coming on and talking about road trips and roadside attractions. I really appreciate it. Always a it. pleasure, buddy. All right, man. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Thank you to Andy and everyone who called in. Also want to thank the Thrillist Podcast team, Jim D'Amico, Megan Kirk, producer Mia Fask, Emily Feld, Brett Kushner from iHeartRadio, Mangesh Hatakudor, and of course, Dan Byrne, who edited and mixed this episode. Stay safe out there, everyone. Be smart. Stay strong. See you next week. What I do.